Ryan, as a child, your body was weakened by asthma and your soul was assaulted from time to time by evil spirits. Tell us a little about that time in your life. Ever since I was a little kid, I had a lot of spirits around me and uh, some really scared me and some were good, but I didn't really understand. And, uh, but yeah, they, they scared the heck out of me when I was a kid. <laughs> did they tell you, did they talk to you or did you just, you know, them? I, I just saw them and I knew, um, that, and I, I don't think they were good ones that were around me. I know there were some good ones. Like I had a lot of experiences, um, with different spirits. I had a really dark one try to come in my room one night. And uh, if you know who Michael the Archangel is, Michael showed up and like repelled it and shoved it out of my room three times. But I didn't know who, who he was. I just knew he was an angel and he was pushing it back. And, mm -hmm. and uh, the spirit then thought to me, didn't speak. It just sent icy water in my brain. That was the whole paragraph all at once. But basically if I ever lost my protection, and I was wicked enough to not deserve that protection that it was coming for me, you know, and I was about 12 or 13 at that point. You, I think so. you said in the book that you were 11 when, uh, well, some, maybe, um, let's see. Yeah, I was probably about 11. Uh, well, you said I, you were possessed by an evil spirit yeah. at 11. Okay. Yeah, that was 11. And this one, this was after that. Oh, wow. So, so um, I, I didn't write a lot about that because um, it is kind of a dark thing, but my mom saw that my dad saw it. Um, I did some pretty crazy things. Like I had, I've been a very sick little boy. I think you saw that in my book, but yes, kind of almost the boy in the bubble. I was always in the oxygen tent, super sick all the time. Well, at this point, I had staph pneumonia and uh, I was in bed and I was in and had oxygen running in my bed. And, um, I had a fever of like, you know, 103, 104 all night. My mom had come in and checked on me and I'd gotten up and I went into her room and I said, somebody's in my room, mom, and I'm scared. And she goes, somebody's in your room. And so she got up and followed me in. And like, I just remember this pressure at the back of my neck and something shoving me to the ground I thought and I was trying to crawl and get away from it and then all of a sudden I was standing in my room and my mom flipped on the lights and she's like Ryan go get in bed and this voice answered for me but it wasn't me talking and I felt like I wasn't in control of my body at that point you know wow. and it was almost like observing yourself but like far away like I was like pushed down this tunnel and like I couldn't do anything about it and my body was moving and I heard this voice coming out of me and uh it was like you know like disobeying my mom and saying mean things to her and uh yeah it it I don't know if you want me to go into the whole thing or not but it, well it's very interesting uh, just uh, to tell it here um was she did she realize that you were that something was happening with you too? oh yeah she said my eyes were completely black wow. and uh she knew at that point that and so she yelled for my dad and she's like david get in here and he uh, was asleep in the, the other room and she told me to go get on my bed and i started jumping up and down on my bed like a monkey and i'd been super sick where i could hardly even walk and then I leaped like clear across the room and, and landed on a bookshelf and scrambled clear to the top. 
And <laughs> that's when she was really scared. She, she, she felt like the Lord told her not to take her eyes off me, but keep talking to me and, and call me by name. And she's like, Ryan, get down from there, get down from there. And I guess I obeyed her and I got down, I got into bed and my dad came in, but that's not what I remember. I remember that my mom turned to call my dad and I jumped off the bookshelf, grabbed her neck and broke her neck. That's what I remember Whoa. that I killed, that I killed my mom. Like, and so the next thing I know, my dad had, had said in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to leave. And he put his hands on me and that spirit left. And I started crying and I'm in my bed. And I kept saying, I killed mom. I killed mom. I killed mom. He's like, no, mom's okay. No, dad, I killed her. I broke her neck and I'm crying this. And he, my mom comes up and she's like, no, honey, I'm right here. I'm okay. And I'm like, well, mom, like, you know, and I just couldn't quite process it. Well, um, I was so sick. They ended up uh, taking me to the hospital the next day. And uh, I ended up spending a week in the hospital with that uh, 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 staph pneumonia. And uh, or the next morning before they took me, uh, the clergy came over, uh, it was uh, my bishop and my dad, and they gave me a blessing of protection that I would never be able to be attacked like that again. And then two years later, when that one tried to come in, that's when Michael was there and shoved that spirit out and protected me. And, uh, but yeah, that was quite a, scary but like i've always seen spirits since i was a little kid and i've always had visitations just michael was the only good one that i ever saw as a kid you know did you see the bad spirit as well as the as well as michael i mean was it like oh a yeah battle? The, well you know i couldn't really see michael like the, as a person it was just light at that yeah. point in in the shape of a person um but the the dark spirit, um, I don't know if you've ever seen one or not, but a lot of people have witnessed these types. And they're so dark that they make uh, the darkness of the night seem like gray. Mm. So, and they have, usually have red eyes or white eyes, and they're just filled with complete rage and hate. Like that's the only way you can really describe them is they're, they're just fear and their hate and their rage. And that's the entity that tried to come into my room. And I tried three times. Do you think they're lost souls or are they demons? I'd say they're, these ones are demons. Wow. So, um, you know, I kind of categorize them into three different categories, basically. Demons who have never had a body. Um, lost souls who have had a body. Or, and wicked spirits that um, have had a body and chosen to follow the Satan or the darkness. And uh, they all kind of behave differently. And, uh, you know, you kind of have to, when you deal with them, you have to treat them a little differently also. And in, in how you banish them or get rid of them, I would say. So you've been dealing with these uh, critters for a long time since <laughs> you were a child. Yeah. In fact, after a while, I would see them so often that they wouldn't even scare me anymore. And I would wake up and I'd see them like hovering over my bed, just this malignant, hateful look on their face. And I would just be like, what are you doing? I'm not afraid of you. You know, I can just cast you out through Jesus Christ. And so I'd command them in the name of Jesus Christ to leave. And they'd just get mad all the time. They'd go out. So finally, after a while, they kind of quit visiting me mm. as much. Um, 
you know, I still saw him in different things, but it's been, it's been a long time since I've had to, um, have one basically attack me face to face anymore. They always kind of seem like they're trying to get me where I'm not paying attention. Do the, does the, uh, church of Latter-day Saints, um, accept this the way the Catholics do that you can be possessed by, uh, yeah, pretty much. I, I think so. I, I think, um, I mean, I've seen enough evidence of it over, you know, I'm not just in church, but, you know, like going to the haunted museum or, um, exploring the paranormal, you know, uh, things like that. They, they're definitely, I I've witnessed, you know, different things with, people to different differing degrees i would say and it depends on how you know weak the person is at the time too um i was in a very weakened state as a kid i had staph pneumonia my body was very weakened and i think that gave him an opportunity to you know step in too yeah i was very impressed that uh acupuncture could cure cure your really terrible asthma you know um I don't know if God just used that as um, a vehicle or if he's had, if, you know, if other people have had success with it, but I was so bad. Uh, it's kind of funny people that knew me from my childhood and then come across me like, you know, in the latter years when I was a firefighter and all that, they'd be like, they couldn't believe it because I was such a sick little kid. Yeah. E- even when I, um, my respiratory therapist, when I first took my firefighter test, I, they have you do a blow test to see your lung capacity. And I told her, I said, yeah, you would never know that I had really bad asthma as a kid. She goes, no, you probably didn't have it that bad because you would still have residual damage to your lungs. And I'm like, no, I was like lived in an oxygen tent. And she's like, no, like she didn't believe it. It was kind of funny. <laughs> oh, you were lying to her about your oxygen tent. I don't or, think so. <laughs> yeah, you know, or, or she thought I was exaggerating how bad I had it. Because she's like, you almost you almost scored perfectly. There's no way you had that, you know. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so I, I, I go back to all with with Lord, all things are possible, you know. And whatever he needs out of you, he'll perform a miracle, you know, so that you can accomplish the task. After your near-death experience, have you had any encounters with uh, evil spirits? Or did that and um no uh not in the same way um as when i was a kid but yes i i i have i've done some house clearings for people Hmm. i've gotten rid of like they've asked me to come in and um my one friend who um was um marine uh force recon and he had killed some people over in iraq and he had brought this dagger back off one of them and he was having all kinds of problems, like middle of this night, the, all the cupboards would open up, all the drawers would open up, mm-hmm. cans of soup would be all over the floor. And it was just him and his wife. And they'd get up to it, you know, and they'd be like, ah. So, and he didn't really believe in God that much or, you know, he was kind of more agnostic. And, but he knew what I, I told him, gave my testimony and stuff. So he asked me to come over and clear his house and. Me and my wife, we went and she has a lot of gifts herself. And we ended up going through and clearing all the entities out and clearing his house. And he never had any more trouble with, you know, since. But um, 
I, I definitely, um, it's different now that I know who I am. I guess I, I, I would say that now that I know that I'm a, a divine spirit having a physical experience rather than just a lost little boy that was vulnerable, yeah, you know, uh, made, a, made a big difference for me. Well, it sounds like instead of being a victim, now you're a warrior against uh, the evil spirits that you can go yeah. clear houses. So that's yeah. a big, that's a big turnaround. Yeah, um, we we've done that a lot. You know, uh, there's a place down in Las Vegas called the Haunted Museum, and they actually have a um, like an exhibit of Doctor Kevorkian, if you remember him. Oh yeah, Doctor Death, and and I honestly, it was kind of funny because I go, I was going in there, and they had one room that had all these paintings that he had made. He was an artist too. And some of his implements and his tools and stuff. And there was just such a yucky feeling in that room mm. and just horrible. And I remember asking the Lord, I was like, I thought this guy was good, you know, like he did some good things helping people transition. And why is there so much negative around this and so many bad spirits? And the Lord said, look at the paintings and you will see his intent. And I looked at these paintings and they were all like people being ripped apart and dismembered and like hor horrific death scenes. And I was like, oh, he Whoa. enjoyed this. He nice. really enjoyed this. And so then we went, we left that room and we went into the room where they had his van where he like um, sent people, you know, to the other side and helped his sister suicide in his van. And the room was crowded. It had, there were so many spirits in there, you know, hundreds of them. And I remember standing there and I had, uh, we were there with two other couples. And my wife was standing next to me and these other couples were there. And all of a sudden something grabbed my arm and was hanging on me like, almost like a, like this, like hugging me and holding on my arm. Mm -hmm. And I looked down and I could see fingerprints on my arm. And I'm like, honey, look at my arm. And she looked at it and she was like, those fingerprints? I'm like, yeah, some, something's holding <laughs> on to me right now. Wow. And so I kind of like just dropped in and tapped in. It was an older lady and she was scared, but she was hanging on to me like almost for protection. Hmm. And I told her, I says, you need to go to God. You need to go into the light. And she said, no, I'm not worthy. And I says, what do you mean you're not worthy? And she goes, I took my own life. I'm not worthy to go to God. And I'm like, yes, you are. I said, and so I sent her my experience. Um, like it, it's kind of weird uh, when you talk to spirits, but you don't have to use these big words. You could just like send them your experience, almost like an email packet. Huh. And so I, I just like got it all and I sent it to her and the light opened up above us and I could see it. And she went up into it. And all of a sudden, all these other spirits started coming over to me, like they were drawn to that, her leaving. And just then, one of the workers burst in the room, and you had a tour guide that took you from room to room to room. Mm -hmm. One of the other workers broke in, and they said, get these guys out of here right now. Like, they need to leave. Whoa. And she was like, but why? We're not done yet. She said, I don't care. Get them out of here right now. And no explanation, nothing else. And we left, we were leaving. And as I was leaving, I was pointing at the, the light to all the spirits, like go into the light, go into the light. <laughs> and the only thing I can figure is that the bad spirits didn't want them to, to leave, you know, it was and like the, a, head, 
little prison they had there for them. Right. I don't know. Maybe I'm crazy. You know, maybe, maybe I imagine all this, but that was like my friends that like the one guy that was a Marine, he, uh, he noticed it and he saw my arm, you know, and he definitely felt the the spookiness of this place. And it's someplace I would never go again. Kind of, he bought tickets for us and wanted us all to go, but there was so much stuff, you know, there and stuff that came back with us. So I had to clear afterwards and like, I, I kind of avoid that stuff for the most part, unless I'm really trying to help someone out. You know, I, I just avoid it anymore. Ryan, between the time as a, as a child when you were haunted by evil spirits and today when you and your wife can actually clear them away, you've had several life-threatening incidents before and after you experienced your NDE. In your book, there are some amazing stories of how God has saved your life. As, as uh, examples, tell us about how God warned you about the Mustang and later saved you and your family from crashing the Cessna. Right. So um, I was out in California with one of my best friends named Mark, and we had gone out there scuba diving. Mark was a scuba instructor, and we met up with another buddy who lived out there named Mike, who was also a scuba instructor. So I actually had two times that I should have died on this trip, not just one, but the Mustang was probably the most profound. So um, I'll tell you about that one today. So Mike's sister was selling a Mustang. It was a 5.0, 1983 Mustang, but it only had 15,000 original miles on it. So their parents were kind of well off and they'd bought their kids a bunch of different cars and stuff. And she just decided she didn't want that one anymore. And this was in 1989. So the car was six years old, but only had 15,000 miles. on it. And it was a fast car. It was beautiful. So Mike said, Hey, my sister's selling this car. If you know anybody. And I'm like, Oh, I want to buy it. <laughs> and as soon as I said that, I heard a voice in my head, do not buy that car. And I'm like, wait, what? Why? Like it, it's a good deal. It's got low mileage. I have the money. Um, why? And I need another car. Like, no, no, it's a good deal, you know. So later in the day, Mike said, "Hey, I got a hold of my sister. Told her you want to buy the car. Um, we're gonna I set up and go over there about seven o'clock tonight. You still want to buy it, right?" And I'm like, yeah, "Absolutely!" Even louder in my head, "Do not buy that car." And I was like. <laughs> like what the heck like i hadn't really experienced this before and i and i thought am i losing my mind am i going crazy like i'm hearing voices that was a real voice and so i was like okay and so we went over to his house about seven o'clock and i fill out the check for his for his sister and i hand her the check and as soon as i hand her the check it hit me so strong almost panicking overwhelming do not buy that car well, I jerked the check back out of her hand and she looked at me like I was crazy. And I looked at me like I was crazy. And I was like, shook my head and I'm like, Oh, sorry. I, I don't know what happened. I handed her the check back and gosh, that pesky little feeling went right away, like completely gone. And I was like, Oh, all right. Well, good. I don't feel like I shouldn't buy the car anymore. That's gone. That was easy to get rid of. So we got in the car and drove it. And I was just in love with this car. I mean, it was fast. It was sexy, you know. So I'm following my buddy who I'd driven out with, Mark. And he's in his car. 
and we decided that we we're going to go home to Utah. So we'd been out there for probably about seven days scuba diving the coast and just having a grand old time partying the night before. And there's got to be something about this date because this was January 1st. Like, um, I'm trying to remember the exact date. I think I got it in my book, but it's uh, 1990 or something like that. And uh, it was January 1st. And we had partied all night the night before on um, January 31st um, or December 31st, excuse me. Mm -hmm. And so New Year's Eve, we had partied, stayed up all night. So I was really tired and we'd been going all day, but I was young at that point and, you know, not getting a lot of sleep didn't really affect me as much as it does when you get a little older. So we're, we uh, leave my buddy's house and we pick up the car to sisters and then we say our goodbyes and we start kicking off toward Utah. Well, I'm following Mark and we get all the way to Vegas and I am beat. It's about three o'clock in the morning and I cannot keep my eyes open. And I said, hey, I pulled over and it was before we had cell phones and everything. So I pulled over and he came back and we were talking. I was like, you know, buddy, I can't. I can't keep my eyes open anymore. I says, let's stay here in Vegas for the night and get back. Well, on January 2nd, I had to be back home because I had a wedding to photograph. Oh. So we knew that we had to, you know, so I was just going to spend the night for a little bit and I had to be home eventually. And Mark's like, no, he says, let's, I really want to go up to Wendover and say this. We had met some girl that worked in Wendover at one of the casinos. And he wanted to go up and say hello to her before she got off work because she worked in the casino. So he was like, let's go up I-93 through the middle of Nevada and we'll go to Wendover and then go home and you'll still be home in time for your wedding. I'm like, dude, I really need to sleep. And he's like, no, 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 don't be such a baby. He says, roll down your windows, throw some snow in your face, turn the music up. He says, you can do this. And I'm like, okay. So we take off up I-93 and we're tuning along. I'm doing about 70. I'm following him. And I was struggling. I'm slapping my face. I'm doing all this. Well, the interesting thing, the, the part that I left out is this car was perfect except for one thing. The seatbelt didn't work. So as you grab the buckle and you try to put it in the receptacle, in the buckle, the receiver, it just would go in and out. It would never work. Mm -hmm. And he says, yeah, you'll have to get a new one from, you know, either the parts store or find a used one at a junkyard. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's, that's the only thing wrong with it. It's not a big deal. So I didn't have my seatbelt on and uh, driving along, doing about 70 miles an hour, following Mark and the road curved like this. And I just kept going straight. Mm -hmm. had my eyes open, but I had fallen asleep with my eyes open, wow. ran off the road decided to play the Dukes of Hazard, you know, hit one of those washouts that they have in, in Nevada. So it's just kind of like this, launched that Mustang. So I'm flying. This is when I wake up. I woke up and I was like, oh, and I'm off the road and I'm like, oh, crap. And I'm flying in this car right now. Wow. And I uh, didn't even have Harry Potter with me or anything. So I knew it wasn't a real flying car. <laughs> just kidding. I think that was way before Harry Potter. But um so this, this flying car goes sailing through the air, comes down on its nose and crashes. Wow. And I knocked the wind out of me. I could not breathe. And the amazing thing was, is I didn't have a seatbelt on, but somehow my seatbelt miraculously got put on me. And uh, it was buckled and I was trapped in the car. 
But wow. if it hadn't have been on me, I, I'm sure when the car came down after flying through the air like it did and landing on its nose, I would have got, been ejected out of the car. And, you know, as it was, I had broken uh, T11 in my uh, vertebrae in the middle of my back. I had ruptured five discs. Well, my buddy shows up and he can't get the seatbelt undone now. Now it's welded inside. He's trying to get it and it won't release, you know, from, from the buckle there. So he pulls out his dive knife because we've been dive, scuba diving, cuts the seatbelt, pulls me out to the top. Wow. T-tops it all shattered and everything. So pulls me out. Luckily, didn't sever my spine or anything, even though I had a broken vertebrae in my back. I couldn't breathe. He carried me up to his car, put me in his car, and drove 150 miles to the Ely Hospital. Wow. So there at the Ely Hospital, the doctor x-rayed me, and he said he, I was about a millimeter away from severing my spinal cord, that it had pinched it, and like where the vertebrae had broken. And he says, you were probably a millimeter away from breaking and being a paraplegic for the rest of your life. Wow. So that was miraculous in its own that I, yes. I survived it. And then the biggest thing was, is I, the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit talked to me and warned me not to buy that car. And I, I know several times. We ignore that. <laughs> yeah, three to be exact. Yeah. And, and then, that seems and then to the, be the number. And then the seatbelt. That's, that's yeah. an amazing thing, too. Well, so really, tell, us, really, tell us about the Cessna incident. So the Cessna, so my dad and my brother, both airline pilots. And so I grew up just wanting to be an airline pilot myself. And, and uh, so I had gotten my license, started flying at an early age, about 16, start working on it. And then girls in school took over and everything and didn't do a lot with it. And then um, I was married and I had two little kids with me. And they were about two and four years old. Well, um, two and three, actually. And we, uh, I was supposed to go and do my solo, hence the word solo, you're supposed to be alone, cross-country flight, right? Mm -hmm. And it had to be at least three hours in length. So I decided to fly down to St. George and go see my buddy who lived down there and then turn around and fly back. And I would get my three takeoffs and landings and I would get um, everything I needed. Right. So the plan was, is to fly down there, spend the night and at his house and then turn around and fly back the next morning. So I'd taken my wife and my two kids with me, which was a big no, no too, because you're supposed to be, I wasn't a licensed pilot at that point. I was still a student. Yes. And so we fly down there. We go to lunch and he's like, hey, did you check the weather report for tomorrow? And I'm like, no. He says, well, I did. And there's a big storm moving in. He says, if you don't leave today, you may not get out of here. He said, um, you, you may be stuck here for a few days. And I'm like, oh, crap, I, I, I can't. I got to get to work. You know, I, I go to work on Tuesday. So I had like one day leeway. So I'm like, oh, we got to fly back now. So he took me back to the airport right after lunch and get in the airplane and we took off. And it was about five o'clock in the evening, maybe 4.30. Well, by the time I got over Cedar City, it was dark. So I, this, I'm flying at night, which I'm not supposed to be doing either as a student. Yeah. And I'm flying basically VFR. So that's visual flight rules which means that you have to be able to see where you're going to fly. You can't fly on instruments and take a vector and all that. 
So I'm flying back and I'm following the radar signals. Well, so they have radio towers back in the old days before GPS. And you would fly from run radio to the next, to the next, to the next. And you would tune it in. And when you're a little bit off course, the needle would swing and you would know to correct your course and come back, which is a lot like this life. If you think about it, we're (laughs) always tuning into God. And when we're a little bit off course, we tune into him and he helps us correct our path. So I was doing that and I was flying really well and I was making it back. And I got just about probably 20 miles away from my airport, Ogden Airport, that I was going to land at. And I was coming over the Great Salt Lake, over the Ochre Mountains. And we were flying about 11,500 feet. And everything went black. I got in the clouds and I couldn't see anything. And so I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to descend a little bit. And I knew the mountains were about 9,500 feet, so I didn't want to go below that. So I started dropping down and got out of the clouds. Oh, oh, good. You know, so I'm flying along again and the wind's really blowing and I can feel it kind of, you know, turbulence and flying along and all of a sudden I'm in the clouds again. So now I'm about 10,500 feet. So now I'm past the mountains and I think, well, I can descend a little further. So I go down to 9.5, which is the altitude I should have been at flying that direction, which was a little bit eastward. And... I'm flying along fine again for about another five or 10 minutes. And all of a sudden I'm in the clouds again. Can't see anything completely. Mm. So if you understand uh, about flying, I'm looking out the cockpit, trying to see which way, you know, as soon as I have a break in the clouds. And then I occasionally glance at my instruments. Well, what happens is if you get into a dive, it's kind of like having a bucket and you fill the bucket up with water and you start swinging it over your head. The centrifugal force acts as gravity. And so it will keep the water in the bucket and none of the water will come out of the bucket. Right. Well, it's the same principle when you're flying. If you get inverted and you're dropping down, it acts as artificial gravity. Hmm. So I'm um, somehow looking out the window, started to turn the yoke. That wing started to drop off and the nose come over like this and started to drop down. So now I'm inverted. I'm completely upside down in the clouds and the nose is dropping. So I feel like I have gravity and I'm trying to look outside and I look down at my instruments and I notice my altimeter is drop rapidly dropping altitude. And I went, that's weird. And I pulled back on it on the yoke and it got worse. And then I looked at my wings and they were a little bit off. So I turned it the right way and they got worse the other way. And I was like, it was not computing why everything was backwards to me. Well, it was backwards because I was upside down. But so I, I was like, I panicked, you know, I didn't know what to do and I can't see anything. And then I hear God's voice and God said, push down and turn right. And I went, well, that doesn't make any sense. I'm losing altitude. And again, I paused second time, push down and turn right, even a little louder. Okay, um, that doesn't make any sense. Third time, so loud. So I pushed down and I turned right. Well, that rolled me over. And by pushing down, actually brought the nose up and rolled me over. So I I wasn't in the dive anymore. So now I've kind of brought it up. And then about that time, I break out of the clouds. And I'm trying to figure out what the heck I'm looking at. Like my brain was not computing 
I could see these lights above it, and I saw this blackness like right here in front of me, but a little bit of the sky and the lights. And I'm like, what is that? And I'm trying to figure it out. And I realized that was the mountain. Mm. And I was like, crap. And so I pulled back on the yoke as hard as I could. And we barely missed hitting the mountain um, by probably 50 feet. Like I could see the, the small rocks on the ground from the moonlight. So like if I had hesitated another second doing, you know, 110, 120 knots, I would have been a big fireball and killed the whole family. So then we're flying back. I, I'm the, when I pulled back so hard on the yoke, it woke my wife up. She startled away because she's like, what's wrong? What's wrong? I'm like, nothing. Everything's good. Just go back to sleep. And I'm sitting here <laughs> shaking like this while I'm flying, you know, and I'm looking. So we fly all the way back to the airport. Well, the storm had gotten so much worse that as we're coming into the runway, I'm crabbed into the wind. Like the wind's, wind's coming from the west and I'm flying north, landing on runway 36. And I'm flying about like this. So the front of the plane's here and I'm flying sideways just to keep it going straight. Wow. Well, I get down toward the runway and mind you, I'm a student pilot. I haven't had any experience with crosswind landings much. Done a few like that. This was gusting 30 to 50 knots. You know, so it really was a big storm moving in. So I'm trying to keep the plane straight and straight and level and come in and I'm trying to line it up with the runway and I'm chewing up the runway pretty fast. And Ogden's got a long runway that big commercial planes can land on. And I'm chewing this runway up and I get down to the ground and this gust of wind hits me and blows me off the runway. So I fly it back over, get centered again, does that two or three times. Finally, I get it there and I just push and I force it onto the ground, uh, you know, pull the power, drop the flaps and I go right to the end of the runway into the gravel and went off the hashtags and everything. And I flipped around, drove it back to our hangar, got to the hangar, shut everything down, collapsed into tears, just started bawling oh, and shaking. My wife was like, what's wrong? What's wrong? And I couldn't <laughs> even tell her. I'm just crying. And she thinks I'm losing my mind. And she's helping me get out of uh, the, the airplane and get into the car and she and my boys the three and four year old have to push the airplane back into the hangar because i'm just a, a massive crying and shaking that i almost killed my family and i mm. just had a, a breakdown at that point so wow. they put the plane away shut everything up and drove us home and she was like what's wrong what's wrong well, about halfway home i decided to tell her what i about killed everybody <laughs> It was a, a, a lesson in listening to that voice when you hear Twice. it. Twice, yeah. 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 Uh, well, Ryan, we've kept our folks waiting uh, for a while here to uh, hear your NDE story. So please uh, tell us the story of your electrocution and, and your NDE. Okay. So that one's probably the most important in the lessons I learned more. So I apologize for being a little too verbose earlier. Not at all. Um, <laughs> So I, being a photographer, um, like what you talked about, had a photography studio and I had these lights in it, these studio strobes. So they're flashes and they are powered by um, a cord. You know, they're plugged into 110 electricity. Well, earlier in the day, I had one, uh, a session and one of the kids was running around from the session and knocked over one of my lights and broke it. And these lights were about 
you know, eight or nine hundred dollars a piece. They were pretty expensive, and back then, be a lot more now. Um, but so it broke it, and I thought, well, I, I can fix it. I'll fix it later. So <clears throat> my kids, I had a theater room that had a projector in it, and they were watching Flash Gordon, the old movie with Sam Smith in it. Yeah, and they're watching that. And look, it was about over, and I decided that I would go. Um, because I'd seen that movie quite a few times. My kids hadn't. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to go fix that light. So I went out into my studio and I grabbed it and had the, the wires and the cords, you know, on it. And I pulled it out. So I have like a the male end or the female end of the cord, the black cord, like a computer cord that has the three holes in it, had the male end, had the three prongs that's inside like the computer or the light. And those two fit together. Well, that whole piece had broken out. It had this plastic housing around it, the wires hanging off. Yeah. And I'm messing with it. And I'm, I had this feeling of impending doom that I was going to get electrocuted. Hmm. And I thought, oh, I better go unplug this. So I went over to unplug it and I had four of them plugged in. I had a double receptacle and I unplugged one, I, which I thought was the right one, but apparently it was the wrong one. <laughs> I went back and um, pretty smart guy, you know, I couldn't get this housing off, off the, the thing. And so I pulled the wires off and I still couldn't get a good grip on it. So I kind of like to MacGyver things and do whatever I, so in my brilliance of my, you know, my very smart brain decided to use my teeth as pliers. So I bit on that, um, that cord with the three metal prongs and they go right into my tongue instantly the electricity grabs me and I can't move a muscle. You know, I'm a pretty strong guy and with all my strength, I could have been the incredible Hulk and I couldn't have overpowered my own muscles mm. being locked up by electricity. So I'm straining all I can trying to pull that cord out and I can't. And I'm just being just, if you've ever been shocked, well, this was my whole body. Every cell in my body felt like it was being a, you know, not just your hand where you're getting that jolt, but my whole body was just being electrocuted. But I wasn't worried. I mean, how many other times has the Lord saved my life? You know, <laughs> car accidents, motorcycle accidents, almost a plane crash, scuba diving accidents, drownings. All these times I should have died. No, you know, I, something's going to happen. I knew it. Like the breaker was going to pop. Electricity would shut off. One of my kids would come in. They'd find it, unplug me. I was going to be fine, like I always am. Well, I got a little concerned when I could see black smoke billowing out of my mouth like a locomotive. Wow. And I thought, goodness, this is not a good sign. Like, in fact, I know I'm going to die. Like, that was the moment that it hit me. You're not making it out of this one. You're dead. And I was, I was mad. I was like, are you kidding me? I'm like, no, I can't die a hero when I was a firefighter. I got caught in a flashover. I should have died. Now I can't die a hero. Can't die in a plane crash. You know, something glorious that I love to do. Um, can't die scuba diving. How am I going to die? I'm going to die from stupidity. I'm going to get my, myself a Darwin Award for sticking <laughs> an electrical cord in my mouth. And, and that's the thing I was mad about. I wasn't mad that I was dying. I was mad how I was dying and how it would be perceived by others which I think is kind of funny now. But so this is happening and 
as you remember, I kept trying to move my eyes to see if my kids could see me or anybody could see me, but I couldn't move anything. Every muscle in my body's frozen, including my heart. So my heart's not beating anymore. It's just sitting in my chest. Every muscle's locked up. And I saw this light appear above me. And I remember looking back up into it. And that's kind of interesting because I couldn't move. So I know right then that that wasn't my body that was looking up in the light. That was my spirit. And this light was the most beautiful light that I had ever seen. It was just like you couldn't take your eyes away from it. It was so compelling to look at. And I remember looking at it and going up to the light and going into the light. Now, um, a lot of people, when they have a near-death experience, see a tunnel with a light at the end. Mine, the light was right there, and I went right through the light. So I had the feeling of traveling in the light. It was weird. Like I was moving and then I ended up in this pure white room. Everything was white forever. I could see. And I went, I'm dead. I'm, I'm dead. And I'm look, looking around and I'm like, I'm going home. And that was the thought that hit me. And I was so excited, like a little kid, five minutes before they can wake up and open Christmas presents. They're laying in bed waiting for that seven o'clock, you know, click of the clock so they can run out and wake mom and dad up and open. I was so excited, so filled with anticipation, so excited, not scared to be dead at all, just completely filled with bliss. And then I remember seeing a, even though this room was pure white, I remember seeing this incredibly bright light above my head and it was in the shape of a person and they were up above me and kind of behind something that almost looked like a curtain or something. It was, it was just something that they passed through and they came down and stood in front of me. And the, the being that was in front of me was tall. It, it must have been 10 feet tall, it seemed like to me, way bigger than my spirit. And I knew it was God. And... I was so filled with love, so filled with nothing I can ever even put into words on this earth. Like it was the most completing and wonderful feeling that I've ever had, that I felt so complete and so loved. I never, ever wanted to leave that feeling. And then God showed me my whole life. He was standing in front of me and sending all this to me. And I just watched like a life review happen almost. And it would go fast and then it would stop and we'd kind of pause on something and it would play out. And then that would go past. And I remember like seeing some of the things that I really hurt me at the time in my life and remembering how bad I was hurt. And I was like, Wow, why was I so hurt about that? That seems like such a beautiful lesson. Mm. I learned so much about me. Like, I could look at that person that had hurt me with so much love and so much compassion because I was looking through God's eyes, not my own. And then even the things that I had done where I judged myself or I committed sins and I saw those and it was the same way. It's like, did you see what you learned? That was kind of the message every time. Did you see what you learned? Did you get that? And it was this beautiful lesson. There was nothing but pride 
coming through the bond with God. There was nothing but so proud of his son for what you learned and what you persevered and how you made it through that. And I felt nothing but this unconditional pure love for things that I hated about myself, things that I hated that I had done, things that were done to me, like all of it was just completely washed away at that moment. It was just nothing but love. And then the review ended and God said, do you want to come home with me or do you want to go back to them? And he did this with his hand. And the floor we were standing on was pure white and it started to go foggy and then clear. And we're standing in the air about 20 feet above my kids. And I could see them playing and the movie had ended and they're playing in the projector and doing these little puppets, you know, these shadow puppets and they're like getting each other. And I'm watching them do this whole thing. And I was just going through a divorce at that time. And I knew these kids needed me and my heart just sunk. And I was so disappointed that I was going to have to choose to go back to them. <laughs> and I love my kids more than anything in the world. Yeah. But it was such a hard, hard decision to leave that feeling, leave that bliss that I was experiencing with God. Like so difficult, like it was the hardest decision I ever had to make. And I was just devastated making it. I'm like, no, they need me. I need to go back to them. And God was like, okay, I will see you again. And I thought there'd be like a high five or a slap on the butt and say, go get them, tiger. You know, nope. I immediately get sent back to my body. Mm. And it was like getting hit by a truck. So I'm up here in this most blissful, wonderful time of my life <laughs> with God, enjoying la la. Bam, this truck hits me, the electricity, I'm back in my body. Wow. And I was like, why would God send me back to my body, but not get me off the electricity? And I heard God's voice and God said, oh, did you ask for help? <laughs> He's got a sense of humor, I'm telling you. <laughs> and I was like, um, I felt a little chagrined at that point. I was like, no, I kind of missed that part. And I thought, you know, um, Heavenly Father, please help. And that's what went through my head. And at that moment, the cord moved. Like, I, you know, I'd been pulling on it, and I felt somebody pull the cord and pulling on it, like outside of me. Mm -hmm. And I went, holy crap. And so I started pulling with it. And it wasn't like the Lord did it for me, but he overcame the impossible. So no matter how strong I was, I couldn't have done it on my own. But the Lord made up the difference. And that's a beautiful analogy of the atonement. He still expects us to do everything we can to improve our lot. But he makes up the difference that we can't do, the impossible part. And I thought that's exactly why it happened that way. It was a lesson for me. Well, the cord popped out of my mouth and everything went black. Like you unplugged a TV. It was the weirdest thing. So everything just goes you know, black, and I'm sitting there um, feeling myself fall toward the ground, and I hit the ground, and then I don't remember anything until my son comes over. He hears me crash and hit the ground. He comes, rolls me over, starts shaking me. Dad, Dad, are you okay? And I open my eyes and open my mouth to talk, and my son went, oh, my gosh. And he ran over and grabbed the phone. He calls 911. He's like, I found my dad on the ground, and 
he wasn't breathing. And I rolled him and then all of a sudden he took a breath and black smoke's coming out of his mouth. And I don't know what's wrong with him. So they ended up taking me up to the hospital and the physician comes in, examines me. He looks at me and I've charcoaled a hole through my tongue the size of a quarter. So I have this, like, if you'd ever overcooked a hot dog up camping to where it's just crumbly, that's what my tongue did. So he wow. pushed on it and it just crumbled with this little forcep stuff, you know, that he had it just like, yeah. and he's like showing me in the mirror. He's like, Oh yeah, you, you did quite a number on here. And then I, I like my teeth had gotten so hot that it melted the fillings of my teeth. It, one of them had exploded and shattered one with a bunch of fillings in it. And the doctor said at that point, he says, I'm not worried about your tongue. He says, it's incredibly vascular and it will heal up within probably two weeks. He says, I'm not worried about your teeth. The dentist can fix all, fix all that. He says, what I am worried about, he says, 110 will cook you from the inside out where 220 will blow off body parts and give you external wounds. He says, you survived the initial being shocked, but he says, you can still die tonight. He says, there could be damage. Your organs could be cooked. He says, it's not a question of if they are, but how much. He says, given the damage that's done to your mouth, he says, I'm very concerned. And he says, I'm going to run some tests on you. We'll be able to see what enzymes are in your blood and know what organs have been damaged. So they were worried about my airway closing up on me. So they put me to sleep and put a tube down my throat and were breathing for me to keep my airway from closing off and closing. And then they said they wouldn't be able to get the tube in if it closed up. So the next thing I remember is me waking up and they're taking all the tubes out of me and the um, taking the IV out. And then the doctor comes in and he comes up to me and he says, well, Mr. Rampton, he says, I've released you from the hospital. You can go home. And I'm like, wait, what? And he says, yeah, he says, I ran your enzyme test three times over the night. He says, because I didn't believe the results. He said, you have zero enzymes in your blood. He says, that's impossible given the damage done to your mouth and the amount of electricity that went into you. Mm. He says, you've got to have damage from something. He says, but I, so I didn't believe the results. I ran, had them run them three times. I even went down and supervised it to make sure they weren't doing it wrong. And he says, you came back with zero enzymes. Like you have no damage outside of your tongue. He says, I, he says, that's impossible. He says, I'm a man of science, out of faith. He says, but you're a miracle. He said, go home and count your blessings. Yeah. And it wasn't the first time, no. <laughs> but that was, uh, that's an amazing, it's an amazing experience. In the little time we have left, uh, Ryan, I was wondering, after this, your book describes all of, there are setbacks in your life and then there are advancements. And uh, one I thought was very interesting was when you attended a sweat lodge. Could you tell us a little about that? Yeah, so <clears throat> that was another time that I probably should have died too. I'm sure you've heard stories of people attending the sweat lodges and they'll pass out and they don't have medical personnel there and the people that die. Well, I was in the sweat lodge and we had this person that was freaking out in there. And so the uh, medicine man, the Native American, did not 
want us to end on a bad note. So he kept trying to calm him down. He was prolonging the ceremony. Well, I was getting incredibly dizzy. The day before I'd gone on this 15 mile hike and carried this guy out that had broken his leg. And I was helping people. I'd gone up and down the mountains like two or three times and got people out that had been injured. And so I didn't make it back even to this camp until like um, midnight that the night before. Then we get up and we do the sweat lodge. So my body's already dehydrated. So from a, like a medical standpoint, wasn't in a good space when I went in there. I was extremely dehydrated. Well, I ended up passing passing out in the in the sweat lodge, and they pulled me out, and I was basically in an alternate reality um, in my mind. Like my mind, what I was seeing, what I was experiencing was completely different than what was really going on. So the interesting thing is the first thing I remember is I was standing up outside and I was looking at my hands as they started to turn to stone, like turn to granite. And I could feel it along with it. And I was like freaking out. I was like, ah, looking at my hand and, and it was traveling up and everything. I felt like Medusa looked at me because my whole body's turning to stone. And so it happens and I'm trapped inside this stone sarcophagus, which was a body. And I don't know how long it seemed forever. And then it started to break apart and light was shining in the cracks of the stone. And then it just crumbled. And what was left was I was an energy being like I was the color of honey. And I was looking at my hand. I lifted it up and it's completely honey colored see through. And I'm moving everything and I'm like, whoa. And like, I heard this buzzing and as I'd move and had all that happen. And then the next thing I know, I was laying down in the meadow and I could feel the earth breathing. And it almost looked, I'd look around and there was nobody around. It's these fields of grass with, you know, rolling hills and blue skies. And I was just alone with the earth and it was breathing. Then the next thing I, I see these dark, forms circling me going around and they're like who are you who are you who you who are you and i was like i'm nothing but i'm everything but i'm nothing and i got caught in this loop where i felt like i was connected to everything but i was also nothing and the next thing i know i, w I wake up in the hospital and i see this bright light and not like my near-death experience but i see this bright light and it kind of starts focusing up and I see a doctor looking at me and I'm looking around. I'm like, he's like, hi, welcome back. You know where you're at? I'm like a hospital. He's like, yeah. He said, so you had kind of, you had a bad experience in a sweat lodge and you were extremely dehydrated and you ended up passing out, went unconscious. And he says, you know, we're going to keep you here for a couple of days. But um, the interesting thing about that sweat lodge for me was that I kind of learned, you know, through a, through a journey that I was, that I was nothing. We are nothing without Christ. Right. Mm -hmm. And yet I was everything. I was connected to everyone and everything through God. And that um, even when our bodies break down and return to stone or to clay or whatever, we have this energy within us, this spirit that lives within us. And so it was kind of this journey that happened 
you know, and the sweat lodge too, that was, it was kind of crazy. And I probably should have died in that one too. But again, I was, I was preserved and, um, you know, I made it through it. <laughs> yeah. Well, in your book, uh, the sweat lodge is described to you as the womb of the universe from which souls are created anew. I that's that was... that's what the Native Americans believe. Yeah. yeah. And apparently it's kind of it, beautiful. Yeah. Apparently something like that happened to you in a way. It, it did. It was somewhat of a rebirth for me. Yeah. And that honestly, that was the beginning of like my life changing. That that was probably the big first big change that I had in my life where I tried to change the path that I was on, um, become a better person. And then I died. And then I had, which was my second change after my death, which I call my God change. And that was the biggest one for me to realize that I am God's. I do belong to God, mm. you know, and nothing else matters except that connection between me and God. And the same thing goes for everyone. It's a very personal relationship. It's not based on anybody else. It's not based on a religion or your beliefs. It's based on your personal relationship with God. Yeah. And I think that's what's so important. And you've dedicated part of your time to helping people to uh, recognize that for themselves. Right. Is, uh, if listeners would like to um, uh, get in touch with you, is there a, some way to do that? Yeah. So um, email is my name, ryanrampton at gmail.com. Um, my book's available on Amazon. Um, it's called You Were Born a Warrior. And um, if anybody even wants to text me or ever call me, um, my phone number is 801-309-6219. And I've talked to people that have read my book all over the world, helped people understand. My biggest journey and mission in this life is to help people understand that they are enough, that God loves them, that whatever they've gone through is absolutely perfect for their learning and growth, mm. and that he is there to support them. He is there to love them. Um, just like my, when I was being electrocuted, he's not going to do the work for you, but he's going to make up the impossible part that you can't do. And he taught me how to love and forgive myself, where I could actually look in the mirror again and look into my eyes and say, I love you to myself, where I used to just hate myself and hated myself for my weakness, for my sins. And now I can love all of me, yeah. even the part that makes mistakes. I'm sure there are a lot of listeners out there who would like to make the same transition that you've made. And you are not a quick learner, I must say, as your, <laughs> as your book reveals. So uh, true. You are so typical of all of us making the same mistakes over and over, or variations on the same mistakes over and over, getting right. saved by God and then losing track and then getting saved by God again. It's a wonderful read. And uh, so I, I would highly recommend it to our listeners. Thank you, Ryan for doing the show today. I think this is going to be very helpful to people when they, when they hear it. Well, thank you for doing what you do and bringing this light to the world. I appreciate that. Well, I couldn't do it without experiencers like yourself. <laughs>